everyone. Welcome to <laughs> New Polities Podcast. We're here to kind of give you some overview of the latest edition of New Polity Magazine. And the guy that always tells me I can't eat on the podcast because it's hard for fixing audio uh, is gone. <laughs> so I'm going to eat. I'm starving. And somebody left some cake in a little thing. So if I, but I can, I'm, this is proof. I'm going to show them that I can speak clearly and articulately while eating cake. That'd be fun. So. So uh, this uh, edition of the journal is, or so pretty. is the technology issue. Um, yeah, so most, most of the, um, Articles in this one, uh, what's I'm I'm blanking on the word reprints. Yeah. Reprints. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just a collection of essays that we thought were really good mm -hmm. at breaking open the technology paradigm. And by we, I mean Mark, because I did not pick any of these out. That's true. But um, we got Ratzinger, David L. Schindler, Neil Postman, Michael Hamby, Ivan Illich, Walter Ong, um, all delivering what I think are great critiques for beginning to understand the Catholic critique of technology. A lot of people think there is no Catholic critique of technology, but I say it's just because we haven't really talked about it enough yet. It's there. Well, I think, well, it's just, I mean, I, I do think it's, it's there, but people don't know what to, to do without it, about it just because I think, well, a common reaction I've seen is, well, if you have a critique of technology, then it means that you obviously don't want to live with it. Or if you have a critique of car or smartphone or whatever, it just means that you have to completely abandon it from your life. Yeah. But it's a lot more nuanced than that. Yeah. I mean, I do think that um, the Catholic Church, people that are seriously Catholic these days, are obviously tending towards uh, Ludditism becoming much more technology adverse. I mean, it's really actually hard these days to find someone who pairs like a sincere Catholicism with a genuine openness to technological innovation just as it comes. So it seems that there's something baked into the faith that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe we're just bringing our Catholic guilt into it where we're like, this is so cool, it must be bad. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems to me like there's more going on there. Okay, um, this is a dumb question. I know I've heard the word Ludditism. I mean, I, I know it from context, but now I'm questioning. Yeah, Luddites. Whether or not uh, Luddites were some weavers, or yeah, what? they worked on looms um, around the uh, beginning of the Industrial Revolution in England, and um, they were basically trying to protect their own trade from mechanization. And one of the ways that they did this was that they smashed a bunch of uh, mechanical looms. I don't know the details of the story exactly. Oh. But it all seems pretty legit to me, And but it became a term of condemnation, as in what it came to mean was someone that resists uh, new technology for its own sake. Like they're oh, simply okay. so... Oh, so okay, so it's not a more nuanced social no, critique. No, it's a it's very just, mean it's all, term. It's all bad. Yeah, it's bad. But lately, um, it's like, you know how this happens, where, where fashions change, and a word that was real mean now is something that you take pride in. So now it's fashionable? It's somewhat, yeah. There was a recent report on like the new Luddites from the New York Times. You know how the New York Times sometimes reports on things happening in New York City as if it's representative of like, yeah. the world? <laughs> so they reported on some like people that use dumb phones and meet some hip place in 
Brooklyn or whatever, and we're like, see, the youth, <laughs> the youth are rejecting the, you know, the evils of technology. But uh, I don't know about that. Yeah. It can become a, a designer lifestyle for sure. However, what we're here to talk about is to defend what I think is the fundamental wisdom that comes out of the church's reflections on technology. And what that can be broken down to is something pretty reasonable. I think anyone would agree with this, that the problem is never really this or that particular technological device. Mm -hmm. Now, look, there's obviously devices that can only be used for for evil things, right? Right. Um, but even then, you can imagine, you know, just some, like, horrible device for killing people. Like, you could probably still use it as a doorstop, right? So there's nothing in its, like, thereness, its physical okay. presence yeah, yeah. That's that good. somehow makes it <laughs> itself you know, evil, but mm -hmm. in its design, it can have you a lens, sure. But what it seems like the church takes umbrage of it in these thinkers and beyond um, is the idea of technology making up for a lack in creation and a lack in humanity, especially. The idea that technology doesn't, it isn't a post-fall reality that we utilize to meet this or that particular need, but is rather... Uh, the very nature of man is to remedy his essentially defective creation, the fact that the, the way he was created through the creation of technological devices. And this might seem kind of vague, but what I mean is simply that what, what modernity tends to do is not to create devices to solve this or that problem, right? Not to meet a particular problem with a particular technology, okay. but to always universalize any given technology until it becomes necessary, until it becomes the dominant mode of living. So the car is a really good example. You know, like the car is not something that's somehow wicked in itself, right? But a world in which everyone needs a car as if the kind of mobility we had was defective in itself. Oh, I see, I see. And so we must have cars in order to remedy the defective human. This okay. is essentially a curse against God as creator. And so what a lot of these folks are talking about is the way in which the spirit of technological innovation is in fact this deep pessimism, like a profound... Like a, a view that the human person on their own is insufficient or the, the way in which we normally function has to be remedied. I mean, contraceptives yeah. are kind of like that. Totally. Like human sexuality is defective on its own, so we have to remedy that. Yeah, like it's just, you know, women were just badly like... built. We talked about that a little with the gender <laughs> stuff. We're back to gender. No, I mean, contraception was actually um, given the big no-no by uh, Humana Vitae. Who wrote that? That's right. That's exactly what he did. And what he said was, it's fascinating, he uh, said that man should not abdicate his responsibility through technical means. So right there from the beginning of this, this critique, there's an understanding of contraception, not just as being bad because it has, I mean, it, it is bad for... Well, the, one, one really, I don't know, kind of like stupid argument that I've heard is like, well, it's unnatural. It's like, well, yeah, but yeah. also so is growing corn yeah. in a row. Oh, yeah. Like that's also <laughs> artificial. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Artifice is awesome. Yeah. Artifice is the way that we get to participate in the creation. I mean, you think about a little kid that looks at all the artifices that you make and he's just thinking that it's all part of one world. It's like, look, there's a tree, there's a skateboard, 
they don't strike him as one being from God and one being like the machinations of man who's crafty and, you know, builds things independently yeah, of just God's the, intention. The world. It's, just it's just the world. It's normal. We make the world. It's awesome. Well, I wonder. Well, uh, I don't but when we're scared, anymore. when we're fearful, and when we think what I've been given needs to be remedied because I can't trust that I'll be, that I'll have access to good. I can't trust that through the way that the human person flourishes that I will be happy, that I need to um, I need to try and alter the structures of nature in order to um, sort of rip from them a security uh, that I wouldn't be able to get through the practice of the virtues, for instance. Um, that's where it becomes problematic. I wonder I wonder if that's the best way to describe it because you could respond to that reasonably and say well actually we do need to pe- depend on technology like we need shelter and that's Sometimes. artifice and that's Oh yeah yeah technology. yeah. Right. Like you you really I I I don't know if that's the best way of describing it. I know what I was picking up um I think well I guess Hanby and Schindler talk more about this is the technological vision uh like the paradigm yeah the way that on which you um like technology becomes uh absolutized in the way in which you approach the world it's Mm. the world is a thing Mm -hmm. uh not to be received but to conquer like you are approaching it with an attitude of fear like maybe maybe this is a better way of doing it because i think we do need to depend on technology like i think that's just part of what it means to be human yeah we're not naturalists um, here so but there's a difference in approaching uh the world as like this is a given that's good and what i want to do is discover this thing and the way that it operates and how i operate and how we work together and how uh i don't you like work with the thing as it's given instead of how can i like extrapolate and exploit this thing so that i can get what it is that i want mm-hmm. um I don't know if this is a, a good example. Well, I, I think gardens are kind of like that. If you think of really beautiful gardens or if you walk into someone's backyard and it's really beautiful, um, usually it's not just because they've like flattened the earth and poured concrete over it and extrapolated what they wanted from the backyard, yeah. but it's because they actually understood their own backyard, what works with it. They understand plants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a neighbor who's has... Well, her backyard is magical. It's like walking into a magic forest. Mm. And it's just a very different experience because she is not approaching uh, the creative world as what she can exploit from it, but how she can create, like work with it itself yeah. and create something beautiful. Totally. Yeah, no, I mean, in a certain respect, if all you mean by technology is making, um, which... Isn't that kind of semantically is odd because technology is a very modern term. It kind of arises with in the industrial revolution. But if you if that's all you mean by it, then okay, we were makers that's... from the beginning. Yeah. Like Adam is made to till and keep the garden. And what that means, what that was taken to mean throughout the Christian tradition was that Adam perfects the nature of things. So he ser- because he is more perfect, he is higher, he serves to them as their principle of perfection. So it's not just that his garden is somehow a, a violence done on the on the earth. It's the perfection of things that cannot be raised to that level of order, that level of beauty that you saw mm-hmm. in your neighbor's backyard. I mean, 
garden is always more impressive than even the most glorious of natural meadows, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the reason that technology takes on a, a different term that I would at least, and this is semantics here, I would at least yeah. oppose it to making in order to make a distinction, but okay. people don't always mean that, the same thing. Sense. But when when we no longer take as the reason for our acting the perfection of of nature but rather when nature is conceived of as being hostile to our own flourishing and so what we do is we try to manage it violently suppress certain aspects of it destroy it like we use violence in some way in order to carve out for ourselves a certain security you know and that's mm-hmm. the sort of like you know <clears throat> And that's why there's always a good attached to every technology because it really does. I mean, it's not we're not just being dumb here. I mean, like we yeah. really do <laughs> go after particular goods. It's just that te- the technological attitude is essentially atheistic. It's that God won't provide. Nature is insufficient. Like what God has given is insufficient. Um, the nature is given to me to, per- to perfect. I don't have a duty to them per se. I have first of all a duty of simply my own survival, which can only be best achieved at enmity with nature as it's given like i need to wrestle it to the ground yeah beat it up and take from it it's coal or it's oil (laughs) or whatever you know there's that famous quote and it was in hanby's article which was just marvelous but i think he was quoting francis bacon um actually i'm gonna pull it up because it's worth reading before we go into some of the other texts um but it's find it what page is it on i don't know that's why i'm that's why i'm shuffling around here i said when you find it you're supposed to take this time to talk about something else while uh, I look for this horrible quote from Francis Bacon. Oh. Well, I was thinking about uh, something. I don't, I don't think it'll be too long to get into. It's just on my mind because I'm, I'm teaching some students uh, a morality class. We were talking about Genesis, but with the idea of uh, nature being hostile, like the, um, the idea of, thorns existing before the fall or not was mm, something that yeah. we talked about because i know that aquinas believes that there were always thorns the creation was creation but it just wasn't experienced essentially as a, a hostile enemy and yeah. i think uh there's certain church fathers that uh when they read genesis like their symbolic image of it is the mountain with the tree of life at the top and the thorns are always uh, present within the garden but they're always pictured down at the bottom of the mountain and um kind of surrounding it like a Mm. like a wall like it's a protection and so so before the fall it was creation was experienced as like oh here's this protective barrier for myself but then when they're kicked out of the garden suddenly the the thorns became an enemy to them so that kind of follows the same paradigm. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and the, the governing principle there was, was wisdom, right? So mm-hmm. man in his original state has by grace um, the wisdom to know uh, things in their, in their nature. Um, and because of that, uh, he knows what a thorn is for. Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing that God gives is ever a obstacle, a scandalon to man. Right. Um, and not to bring this, well, I know we weren't going to talk quote, about, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, we weren't going to talk about contraceptives the whole time, but 
to bring it back to that, I mean, that's, I think, completely what women experience their bodies as. Like, my body is an mm. enemy, and so I have to control it instead of working with the way that it naturally functions. Um, so, yeah, so then and then if your body is the enemy, then you do need technology to control it. Yeah. And, and to make it into a thing that it, you know, questionably wasn't supposed to be in the first place. Yeah, and then it gets super weird because I think within a world in which nature is presumed to be deficient it's very paradoxical because on the one hand you have people who need technology to affirm that their bodies now have worth of some kind so right. their bodies need to be modified in some way um, precisely in order to be the work of human hands so you can see this fear of like the given mm -hmm. because the given is precisely what all of culture says like got to deal with the given in a way that makes sure that we can scratch as much life out of it as possible for us. So that means that our own view of our given bodies has that same kind of um, need for the evidence of being an artifice as opposed to being something natural. But then paradoxically, what it also does is it, <laughs> it, it gives rise to naturalism. So the idea that uh, sort of like nudism, like it's like the equal and opposite reaction in some ways that okay. you have precisely in the most technologically modifying anti-nature world, you have precisely people who say like, uh, we don't need to make anything. All we need to do is, you know, we don't need to wear clothes. We don't like everything you have is perfectly good. There's no, there's no problems. You should live and sleep under the stars, you know, this kind Just of. Just go be hippies and hunt trees. Yeah, which is, is obviously the same sort of problem because you're still positing the human person as an artifice almost just as like a really good artifice like it's really durable it's it's more than you think when it's just obviously not true it's like what we need is the right relationship to technology mm -hmm. we don't need an absolutization of it we need to um we need to be able to use it for problems it's such a simple idea but oh, I, I, I maintain yeah, that yeah, it's yeah. profound i maintain that when you because we live in a fallen age, um, it's harder to perfect nature's than it once was. Right. And that includes our own. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so everything is sick and need of, in need of a doctor. Right? And, and so it's not that technology is bad, but it's that it should be limited in its application to actually solving particular problems. Mm -hmm. It's like a bridge is a technology. Yeah. Right? Right. But the problem that that we have, it's like if you can imagine a world in which someone builds a bridge, makes a bunch of money off the fact, and then says, I'm going to market bridges everywhere. Bridges, they're the next big thing. Everyone's <laughs> going to have a bridge, a bridge wherever, you know? Which you laugh, but it's like it's precisely what we do um, wherever we can. Namely, right. take something that's for the solution of a particular need and then instead make it into something that everyone must use phones are an obvious example right, 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 there right. can be a need of long distance communication at an instance but what we have now is a world in which it is impossible to live in a normal way without the technology okay and well this is where illich comes in i think oh i was gonna make that transition oh. dang it sorry dude so there's two uh articles from illich and both of them are from the same book right that's Ivan Illich, so for those who didn't get to um, enjoy us talking about him sort of <laughs> stutteringly and haltingly <laughs> on the gender podcast, this is our our dear um, radical critic of modernity. He was a priest. He had some 
heretical ideas and kind of walked away from the priesthood in some ways. But don't let that stop you reading him because he is truly one of the most honest um, writers that I've ever read and one of the most challenging. Like He, he will mm-hmm. always take a critique to the point of no return. Like he, <laughs> he will critique modernity to the point where you have to ask yourself, why you don't just kill yourself right now. <laughs> and so you have to be willing to go through that with him. So he wrote two pieces that we included here. They're um, Disabling Professions, which is from his book, The Right to Useful Unemployment, which I love the title. Mm-hmm. And then um, Energy and Equity, uh, which is the title of a book. Uh, it's really an essay. It's been published as a book, but it's really an essay. And we took a portion from it called the industrialization of traffic okay. I went from there. Got it. Well, I thought we'd begin with the, the second one on disabling professions, although that one was a little bit more difficult to read. Um, just kind of seemed like he used a lot of jargon that was kind of slow to slog. So. Yeah, and part of this is the effect of it coming, you know, halfway into a conversation right right but i think you could probably lay out his basic Mm -hmm. um, claim here yeah so kind of what you were talking about with um like absolutizing technology it's not just solving a particular problem but uh making it i guess like everyone's problem and everyone's solution Mm -hmm. and he's using that to critique professionalism um which you know we think we've all experienced um trying to find a good quote to pull yeah i mean his his biggest critique is one that i think we've all experienced which is namely that um we live in a world in which professional standards and certif- certifications uh certifications that's how you say that word yeah. uh, <laughs> um increasingly provide an absolute barrier between the person and his own capacities and then his ability to actually act in the world Mm -hmm. Um, to the point where it's almost seen as criminally irresponsible sometimes to do things that don't have professional certification behind them Mm -hmm. you know so one example that i always think of is you're basically insane if you try to do your own electric work and even it's illegal in some places right. in America. Like you just can't do it. Um, or for instance, it's it's insane, and you should be frowned upon for um, not going through the hospital system to give birth. That's a really big one. Right. Yep. Um, or so so basically things um, that often human beings have done. Or things that we can do, but things that we're not allowed to do because we don't have a piece of paper, and. Like, on the one hand, like, it, it's there for a reason, because there are a lot of incompetent people, and there are a lot Absolutely. of people who are evil, and you want to prevent that, obviously, but um, not not everyone is in that actual position. I mean, yeah, so this is where um, it's, a, it's a sort of a delicate critique, mm-hmm. because, yeah, obviously it's the case that people are sinful, stupid, incompetent, and malicious yep. some of the time. The trouble with a technological society is it can only ever think in terms of mass solutions and absolute answers. So it has to 
bend to the lowest common denominator. Right, absolutely. So you have, instead of the idea that, okay, there are some people who have a, uh, let's use the birth example. So there's some people who are quacks and who in their efforts at midwifery are in fact putting lives in danger or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and they should be um, rooted out and destroyed. Oh, that might be excessive. Told to stop doing what they're doing. Um, instead of that being the response, when you're trying to govern on a mass scale, there's simply an I mean, unrealistic ability yeah. to do that, right? You, you cannot can't. investigate every instance, right? right. Mm -hmm. Now, there's two types of people in the world. When they, when they face this problem, namely that you cannot govern every instance, mm -hmm. right? There are the people who think technologically for mm -hmm. a technological solution, and then there's people that think socially for a social solution. And by and large, I'm only friends with the latter group. Okay. But that's not what we're here to talk about. The technological mind says something to the effect of, well, then we need a mechanism that applies to mm -hmm. everyone so that in one gesture, the governing body, the state, the professional institution, whatever it is, um, can create a system by which only those competent um, mm -hmm. practitioners come to be at all, right? right? The other mindset, the social mindset, says something to the effect of, well, then, we have a problem with our society. If it's the case that governance is happening at a level in which incompetent people can't be punished, if, it's, if it is the case where... That uh, we cannot do the thing that we can do, want to do. We can't do it because of the scale we're operating at, yeah. then we should be operating at a smaller, smaller scale. scale. So it would go precisely the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. Like, Well, let's distribute power and authority so that there are people who have authority over midwives at a smaller level, say in this instance, right. so that that can actually be judged as opposed to saying, let's find a te technocratic solution. Sure. But right. if you if you already start moving in that direction, then your apparatus just has to get larger and larger and more and more centralized. And, and because, since, yeah. because, I mean, is it, yeah. if that's the route that you're going to go, that's the only way that it's going to be effective. Yeah, you got to really do it big or go home. Yeah. Go big or go home. That's, and the thing is, because America especially, and we're talking about America here, but obviously it would apply to any any big big old nation uh because we've already made the decision to go big we have to keep on we're stuck. we have to keep on going yeah. big um which we'll talk more about whether that leads to hopelessness or not but um so what illich is noticing is the increased impotence of the person on their own two feet the increased impotence of the person not necessarily just as an individual he's, he's criticized of individualism sometimes but i think I think he has smaller social units in mind as well. Mm -hmm. um, that because of these, um, because of the, and, and, and to be clear, I think he, he thinks people are well motivated at the beginning in the sense of they really are driven because they're trying to stop you mm -hmm. know, bad things from happening Yeah, to create degrees of right. professional certification. Certification. But um, the trouble with mechanism is that it outlasts people, whereas judgment and authority, it's constantly represented by a person. Something like a mechanism of, of certification uh, mm -hmm. is, well, it's a mechanism. And so um, it can operate even when it no longer is reasonable. It has... 
Aquinas talks about the law and how law always has to be dispensable according to person Mm -hmm. and circumstance. So that means any kind of human ordinance of reason, and I would include all technological apparatuses under that, have to be open to be good, to be moral, have to be open to a moment where you say, okay, in this instance, it doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. And that is by definition what a technological society cannot do. You cannot have a person who can judge the particular circumstance because it's operating at it's operating for odd ends and at too large of a scale. Right. And so what you end up with is um, people being the victim of bureaucratic and mechanical mm-hmm. situations, um, which is poisons them against you know the idea of government and authority and the society as a whole. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sad. Well, one of the examples that I wanted to talk about is education, and mostly because I can speak to that more personally, because I was an educator. I taught high school for two years, um, uh, and I, well, I mean, I, I just remember feeling very cynical about the education, education major in particular, because I, I mean, I ended up uh, teaching high school without an ed degree, because I went to school for theology. Um, but then most people that I knew had gotten an ed degree and they had gone through this giant certification process. But then when they came out the other end of it, they're like, yeah, it was mostly useless. Mm-hmm. It was mostly a waste of money and mostly a waste of time. There are some like, I mean, there's legitimately helpful things that you learn. Um, but I didn't take like four years and that amount of cash to get those. And the other right. thing that I noticed is that the best educators that I had didn't go through that certification process. Like they just studied philosophy they were, yeah. became professors at the end of it um and illich is pointing out that yeah we have a uh, certification process where um like self-education is not legitimate i mean mm-hmm. you can have legitimate knowledge and you can actually be competent but because you don't have a piece of paper to prove it mm-hmm. then like you can't get a job or yeah um, you're not considered you're not considered a professional, mm-hmm. and, and so your opinion doesn't count, no and one, the no expertise you your, have is not real. And there's no one to judge your particular circumstance, so mm-hmm. you're just out. Yeah, no, I, I think that that is exactly what we're talking about. Um, the the management of society as as a mechanism is done for the sake of apparently reducing incompetence. But what anyone who's actually lived for a little while knows is that it also allows for incompetence mm-hmm. because the very same gesture that right. puts <laughs> certain um, sort of mechanical steps in place in order to receive a degree or to receive certification as a building inspector or to receive right. whatever you want, to the same degree that it makes it um, impersonal and for everyone, it allows people to game the system by attaining those steps through means that don't ever require real knowledge. Right. Now, we see this very obviously with just straight bribery, for instance. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, my kid has a certification. I paid you know, the Ivy League school to right. get him in. So there's that. But there's also just the ability to do tests well, to fill out the forms, mm-hmm. to show up to the sort of uh, um, various online training seminars. I mean, if anyone's gone through like even like the fast food industry, 
right? Where you get certified in safety training because you watched a video or something. Um, right. They know that <laughs> they know that a society that tries to get personal results through impersonal means is doomed to fail. Mm-hmm. You do not produce virtue by a system in which there's no teacher, like there's no master inviting you into the skill, into the knowledge, but just you know, having a certification process. Right. So you're not actually training people in competence. You're just training people to be really good at following the rules. Right. Exactly. And what's fascinating. And rewarding people who do that too. Just rewarding people who aren't thinking and just start checking all the boxes. Yeah. Um, and and obviously some boxes that are checked have to involve thinking. Like I'm not right. saying that there's an illegitimacy to testing generally or something like that. But what is the case is that there are different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And the lie of a bureaucratically organized society, like the one Illich is talking about here, is that it produces equality, right? Okay, everyone has to go through the same system to get the same results, right? If right. you want to drive, everyone has to do Therefore, these Therefore, everyone is like equal and is on equal and footing. get this license, yes, exactly. But what actually happens is that you create a society in which people who are adept at navigating bureaucracies succeed disproportionately right. to those who are not so adept. And it is not a moral failing to be uh, inept at navigating bureaucratic systems. It is not a right. moral failing to be a bad test taker, for instance. It is mm-hmm. not a moral failing to be bad at sort of the production of a constant CV that you know um, accords well with mechanical ways of choosing different people for jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, for instance, the one of the problems in our town is that when people are looking for a job, they often, because of the various reasons, which kind of boil down to poverty, um, they don't have a driver's license or an right. ID. Mm-hmm. So you need to be the certain kind of person that's raised in a certain kind of way to not see this as simply part of your exclusion from a wealthier, richer, and more competent society, but to actually see the idea that you're all equal before the law and that you just happen to be in some place where you don't have the necessary ID that everyone else has, and then to engage the bureaucracy as an act of will, because it's not, it's not easy, right? Mm-hmm. you got to get a ride, got to face the bureaucrat who scares you, and you have to you know, hear what they need from you. So I take someone up to get a state ID. They say, oh, sorry, he can't have a state ID because he needs three other forms of ID in order to get the state ID. Now, three other forms of ID he doesn't have, not through any fault of his own, but because his parents didn't His parents didn't save the documents. Okay, so now we're going back and we're calling Social Security Administration. We're saying, hey, I need this form of ID to get that form of ID. So how do I get get a Social Security card? And they say, well, you need this form of ID, which, of course, he doesn't have, right? And there's people that are good at this sort of thing, right? They're good at keeping track of things. It's one mm-hmm. of their gifts. It's not me, but but it's one of their gifts. There's people that are really good at seeing a series of obstacles, like 17 different ones, and, <laughs> and being willing, having that kind of thrill of, I'm going to accomplish A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and then come out at the end. These are the people who get it. like real satisfaction from crossing things off lists. There's list people. I am. I am not. A, no, I'm not. You're not a list person. I am not a list, list person. It makes me feel exhausted. I hate lists. Yeah. I mean, I have them because I need them. Now, now here's here's, here's the point. Within a society in which, like, we assure our own security by setting mechanical systems of certification in front of every good, which is, I think, an accurate description. Mm-hmm. 
and believe ourselves to be doing this, you know, because it's it's the most convenient way of getting rid of, you know, malicious actors. We inevitably reward people who are naturally good at um, operating that sort of society. Mm-hmm. Um, because the thing about humanity is we keep on having kids. So people are born again and have to <laughs> face the thing we've built. And not everyone's as up to it as the last person. Now, it might sound like I'm making a sort of appeal for like the disorganized artist type as like the victim <laughs> of society. But actually, it's the fact that our society allows people to glory in the disorganized artist victim thing uh-huh. that makes it so repulsive. It's like, what I'm saying is not only not only are certain people disabled um, from the get-go by the way that we've um, made it so that systems don't have any consideration of person and circumstance, mm-hmm. but also even the people who are good at the systems, they end up uh, disproportionately leading the bureaucratic organization itself. Mm-hmm. So what I mean is if you're really good... If you are that kind of person, then yeah. you know, Leading that kind of system. You become a lawyer, right? You be, yeah. you know, or you become really good at insurance or something like that. But I find that that is also a disabling of the possibilities for that type of mind. I mean, like the, that idea of a, a mind that's really good at discerning a multitude of rules and following them and keeping them mm-hmm. all organized, that is a musical mind. That has a sort of glory to it, a creativity to it, a, a sort of fractal understanding of things, a... I mean, I listen to like the music of Bach sometimes, like the fugues, mm-hmm. and I get this sense like, oh yeah, this is not the artist who's like disheveled and disorganized. This yeah. is like a meticulous mathematical mind at work producing some of the most beautiful comp- compositions that you could imagine. Right. So are you saying that like the bureaucratic system starts rewarding list people, <laughs> essentially, <Yeah. laughs> and then like the creativity that they do have is just like pigeonholed in yeah, these boxes? Yeah, because the only thing, the only thing more dangerous the only thing more dangerous than failure in a corrupt society is success because the ability to succeed at managing a machine built for mass society does give you rewards of like mm-hmm. more money basically, but it's crippling to the human spirit. I mean, who, right. ha- who has met someone that um, is really good at bureaucratic management that is like happy in their bureaucratic job, like working for the IRS or something? Uh, I, I at least I haven't, and it's it's because it seems like there's a um, by making what is essentially a technological solution that might apply in a certain particular circumstance into the way that we protect ourselves generally, mm-hmm. we create really shortened possibilities for human life. It's like certain people aren't going to do very well. And certain people are only going to get so far before they run up against their own inability. Right. And then people who are really good at it are going to appear and will be rewarded as being operators of the system. Well, what I was going to say earlier is that they really do appear as being virtuous. Mm. Like it creates Mm -hmm. a new virtue paradigm where the virtuous person is someone uh, who is good at navigating the system and following the rules. And so you create a person who's interior life is being valued on qualifications that aren't actually moral but are just certain skills that are good for this system um and then i i think like we actually start interpreting it that way um even as like christians like i think a lot of people like the the reason why they're unimpressed with christianity is because 
like we're living in a bureaucratic mindset where like to be a good Christian means to be good at checking off all the boxes. Mm, yeah. It means to be like a list person. It means um, to be good at following the system and following the rules. And it mm-hmm. doesn't mean like this is a person who is courageous and can actually make judgments and judge the law or judge the system in any way. Wow. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, that's a very boring, it's just very, very boring. Like, of course, like people are turned off from that kind of bureaucratic Christianity. Yeah, no, it fits, I mean, like you experience it fits it as too a kid. well with the world. You experience it as a kid, like you, like you want to be like a good person. You know that, but uh, like you're confronted with choices, and like you start, you start believing that certain things are like moral failures or like are wrong when they're actually not. I think you had a couple good examples that we were talking about earlier. I'm trying to remember. Uh... Sorry for the spot. <laughs> I know. Well, I know. Like one, we were, well, I guess this would kind of come up more in the car conversation um but uh like we like as a kid like you have an immense like feeling of of guilt for trespassing on someone's property but that's not actually a moral failure to want to cut through the neighbor's yard but you experience it as such totally yeah i i think about the way in which um impersonality is generally rewarded and how if Basically, I think women are punished in this whole system. Right. No, no surprise. Okay, look, all, this, this is the argument. All I'm saying is if it's true, as many people have said, that women are more concerned in spirit with personal relationships. This is true. Okay. You said it. Yep. You're a woman, <laughs> so I have no more responsibility for the claim. Okay. <laughs> uh, if that's the case, then it seems to me that a world that assures its security by the implementation of impersonal norms um, is worse for women than it is for men, generally speaking. Obviously, there's, you know, obviously there's exceptions. Mm-hmm. And um, I've experienced this with, with my wife in that, you know, she can be the victim of the most impersonal of possible processes. Like she, like I drive through a, uh, a toll booth, don't pay, say, gets a ticket, goes to the wrong house, say, gets a fine, (laughs) fine comes later. All of this having been achieved by computers, right? right? At no point was my wife considered personally as a person and a circumstance that could even be considered. She was never even thought of. Mm-hmm. And yet when the thing finally arrives, like the, the reprimand, you which we all rules. experience, right. right? We all experience the bureaucratic reprimand, even when it is actually as much a reprimand as like a rock hitting another rock that, you know, that doesn't work. That analogy doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> even when it's totally automated. Yeah. Um, she experiences it as a, as a personal rebuke. I mean, she cannot she cannot distance herself from the kind of meaning that thing would have if it was coming if it was from personal. a person. Right? And I don't think that's like some kind of failing. I think that's actually one of the greatest things about women generally, um, which is that they kind of refuse to be disassociated with the world of persons. Mm-hmm. And so the world becomes, I think, more, you know, People talk about this in different ways. Like men are better at compartmentalizing or we can like yeah. shut off certain parts. 
and I think there's a certain truth to that, but I think it's more that we're talking about the contrasting reality of the female mm-hmm. who is, you know, they say Eve was the one who woke up and the first thing she saw was another person, mm-hmm. right? Whereas Adam is right. the one that w- wakes up and looks onto the world. Um, and I think that there's something to that, that personality is punished in some way. Um, so that that's my example of a uh, things that feel like they're really bad, but in fact, and you know, yeah. Andrew's talked about this. He, he's sort of citing Foucault that the the conspiracy behind all this is that these norms, these processes of certification, are only on the face of it for the safekeeping of people from bad actors, mm-hmm. but they have this secondary purpose that really drives them, which is the production of people that don't make the certification. So it's a production mm-hmm. of an underclass that allows us to live a kind of faux morality in the absence of a Christian social order, mm-hmm. whereby goodness becomes having successfully followed the rules right. and badness becomes things like that person who doesn't have a car and is walking in a weird place. Isn't he disgusting? You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like we find new ways to live a life of being elect versus being damned mm-hmm. because we need to, because that's who we really are. Right. But we, we very conveniently take away the actual theological mystery there and make it into well you're saved if you you know saved a certain amount of money every month from when you were eight years old and now you're getting great returns on your your what's it yeah whereas you irresponsible moron who didn't do that well it's not you're damned yeah so but before we move on i think illich there's two things from the essay that just in case you think that we're just talking about what we think, <laughs> um, that he mentions that's pretty important. So, so one of them is the idea that um, one of them is the idea of what he calls um, radical monopoly, or it's on seventy four. Uh, seventy four. Um, yeah. Um, well, so, legalized control over work, uh, things like this. Um, where basically he talks a lot about the production of needs mm-hmm. that needs that are simultaneous with their their fulfillment mm-hmm. um, and how the professions often arise like the feeling of their necessity often arises because not they're, because they're meeting a need that because they're has telling existed. you that you have a need because they're telling you you have the need exactly and he is he's so very resistance resistant to this um so you know an obvious example is like medical advertising and such mm-hmm. um are you sleepy do you sometimes feel a little bit off like the world's gone a little purple well <laughs> have we got the drug for you where you make the need vague enough that you're kind of just describing part of the human condition he says the same thing in this about um, therapists that it used to be like, you know, in the criminally insane that would need something like a psychiatrist as, mm-hmm. and now it's basically fashionable to have one um, where the need and its fulfillment is, impu- is both imputed and then resolved by one in the same profession. Um, uh, there's a quote at the, bottom of 74 um so he writes uh that 
professionals or the professional class. They claim special incommunicable knowledge, not just about the way things are and are to be made, but also about the reasons why their services ought to be needed. Mm-hmm. Merchants sell you the goods they stock. Mm-hmm. Guildsmen guarantee quality. Some craftspeople tailor their product to measure your fancy, uh, your measure or your fancy. Professionals, however, tell you what you need. So the yeah. the middle bit about the the guildsmen and the craftspeople who are like tar- tailoring their product to what it is that you need, like that's technology as like fulfilling a need. Like you come to them like I am this size and this shape. Can you make it? Uh, whereas the opposite mentality is the the professional who claims this special incommunicable knowledge mm-hmm. tells you this is this is a thing that you need and you need it in this way mm-hmm. yeah. and so you become dependent upon them instead of them looking at you in your particular circumstance and in your need and offering their expertise to you i guess yeah no you see this all the time in like like when you have to get drawings for a certain project that like an architect does even though you could do it yourself with no problem mm-hmm. um, I mean the idea is always of course that there's some worst case scenario but that's all the mechanism is oriented towards and not the case scenario where you say hey I can do this competently mm-hmm. it's like well that's not really the question within a technocratic society mm-hmm. um, yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah, I liked, I liked how he was describing it as a monopoly. Um, yeah, just a helpful image. Yeah, I'll read a part that kind of goes through it. Um, so he says, when I learned to speak, presumably this is like, 30s maybe um problems oh yeah existed only in mathematics or chess <laughs> solutions were saline like a saline solution or legal and need was mainly used as a verb mm. the expressions i have a problem or i have a need both sounded silly as i grew into my teens and hitler worked at solutions the social problem also spread Problem children of ever newer shades were discovered among the poor as social workers learned to brand their prey and to standardize their needs. Need, used as a noun, became the fodder on which professions fattened into dominance. Poverty was modernized. Management translated poverty from an experience into a measure. Poor became needy. The idea here is that people, for the sake of their own security, create their own necessity, right? Mm-hmm. So he uses examples in other places of villages where people happily built their houses according to no particular method. They just they built <laughs> shelter. That's what they did. And then a body, some professional body, um, observing, this is in Mexico, observing okay. these standards, said, well, these are, uh, these are dangerous, these are unsafe. The, these are the norms by which a house can be constructed mm-hmm. and it's implemented. So now what was poverty, right, which is to say a house built by people with 
little money right. becomes illegal. So now the same oh, houses oh. Are, are criminal houses. So you're not allowed to build in that way. And this is what he talks about when he talks about hmm. the modernization of poverty. Oh. It's that there is a kind of poverty where because nature is abundant and because social help is real, people can get along. They can get by. Yeah, people can make do. Mm -hmm. And then there's a kind of poverty that operates on the basis of measure that says things like, well, you need this much income. You need to have these this sort of way of living. And then it imputes, usually through goodwill, like it wants to resolve poverty. Mm -hmm. It imputes the needs. It's like now these people are both the object of police action and charity. Like, oh. hey, they need their houses. Like, look at them. They're suddenly... Living in in a disaster zone where, of course, they've been doing that for a long time quite peacefully. But yeah, so so he has this um, keen awareness of the way mm -hmm. that we create we can create the needs at the same time as offering uh, the solution to them. And so I think if he has an ideal here, it's that we don't create needs. Mm -hmm. We let people speak their own needs, like, and that's why he says it's not a noun; it's a verb. Right? It's not like a thing people have apart from them actually saying, yeah. I need, you know, <laughs> a roof that doesn't leak or something like that. Right. I like the, the next sentence too. During the second half of my life to be needy became respectable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's just become more and more the norm. Like to, to have a need is now a sign of social competence. Mm -hmm. Like it's a part of navigating the bureaucratic system knowing like what your needs are um yeah and navigating the system to yeah fulfill them well anything else that you want to say about that one nope i think Saving it's great professionals i mean i could just read him because he's he's great uh Increasingly, needs are created by the advertising slogan and by purchases made by order from registrar, beautician, gynecologist, and dozens of other prescribing diagnosticians. They need to be formally taught how to need, be this by advertising, prescription, or guided discussion in the collective or in the commune. Uh, as, people be as people become apt pupils in learning how to need, the ability to shape once from experience satisfaction becomes a rare competence of the very rich or the seriously undersupplied. That's very important, actually. As, as people become apt pupils in learning how to need, the ability to shape once from experience to satisfaction becomes a rare competence. I find this to be so true. Like People don't actually even know. Like The, the danger about giving people their needs is you disable them from the start from being able to um, sort of dive into the real and find what they really want, like what satisfies mm -hmm. them and what doesn't. Like you have people through a whole slew of advertising who are all after mental mental health, right? Like right, they, right. they need mental health, they have to have it. Um, and what this expresses to some degree is just this inability to think of, to be living a life that you can express your own needs for yourself. It's like you use the jargon of what people give you. Mm -hmm. So, Well, that kind of reminds me of what he says in the other uh, essay about being a like a perpetual passenger. Mm -hmm. like, uh, this attitude of dependence, like you create 
uh, a certain helplessness. Like if you're told that you have all of these needs and it's this professional class that is able to provide for those needs, well, since you don't have those skills or competence on paper, then it puts you in a place of perpetual dependence and perpetual helplessness. And I think a lot of people do feel that way. Yeah. I definitely have felt that way before. Yeah. <laughs> you want to talk about the cars? Yes. Let's talk about the cars. It's all about cars, baby. So the second, the second essay that we want to talk about, Energy and Equity. Energy and Equity. Um, is one of the best essays in the world. Here, Illich argues that cars make you slow, and he spends a long time <laughs> justifying this seemingly impossible claim. Um, and he does it in a couple couple different ways, right. which I think we can go we can go through. Yeah. Uh, so, so he's making that argument that cars make you slow, and then he's also making the argument that um, increased speed, so like the ability to move faster, mm-hmm. uh, has as its direct consequence a uh, hierarchy of um, means of transportation. Right. So if we start operating at higher speeds, what we will really be doing is limiting speed by, or travel by a certain speed to a certain class of people. Yeah, at the end he says, tell, tell me how fast you go and I'll tell you who you are. Yeah. I mean, if you just think about it for a second, you know it's true. Totally true. If you're really poor, you're walking. Yeah. Like really, like, mm-hmm. like quite out of it, you're walking. Uh, and then you might be able to get a bicycle, and then you move up to car. Um, and, well, actually, no, you move to the bus system and then, and then cars. Right. So what, what, how does he make this argument? Well, he basically says... Um, well, do we want to start with that one, or do we want to start with the first one that he talks about? What's that? The, the, the first one is um, just about... What? walking oh yeah like, yeah like cars cars are supposed to i mean cars are supposed to make us faster and save time uh and his first point is like look well we actually on average walk about as many miles as our ancestors it's just their parking lots yeah and right. through giant department stores and so you have this illusion of being in the place where you need to be but because the place that you are at is so massive you end up walking the same amount Anyway. Yeah, and I should say we're definitely talking about America here. I can't right. <laughs> say this for everywhere else. But, yeah, it's true. One of the difficulties we have sometimes in our little town is um, convincing people about this fact because it seems <laughs> very paradoxical. So sometimes people will say, well, you can't close down the street and make it pedestrian here because people won't want to walk from their cars that they par- park right. elsewhere all the way to where you are. Mm-hmm. And what I've done before to help with this <laughs> argument is I've gone to Walmart Park, park, my, park my car in a normal spot and take in one of these uh, wheels that click every time there's a foot. No, no, it was a very dorky, but um, and just measured the distance from my car to where, not to the entrance of Walmart, but to what I wanted in Walmart. Uh, I forget what I got, but I went and got something. Okay. And it was, it, I was walking more than two city blocks like okay. to get in to, you know what I mean? So I was walking more... Um, to take a car somewhere and go to Walmart than I would have had we a pedestrian situation in which I could have purchased the same item. Right. So the thing wild. that I had to bring to other people was like, no, 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 you actually walk. walk. You walk a lot. Um, you walk to your car and you walk out of your car and you walk where you arrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and this hasn't like somehow saved us from our feet. Right. Nor, does it, let's say, would we want really to be saved from our feet. So mm-hmm. he says, 
People on their feet are more or less equal. People solely dependent on their feet move on the spur of the moment at three to four miles per hour in any direction and to any place from which they are not legally or physically barred. Um, and then he says this, and this is like the key distinction to a Catholic understanding of technology from other understandings. An improvement on this native degree of mobility, walking, by new transport technology should be expected to safeguard these values and to add some new ones, mm. such as greater range, time economies, comfort, or more opportunities for the disabled. So what he's arguing there is sort of formally important, which is that uh, what modernity tends to do is take some particular value and say, look how much this technology can get this particular value, and then just not talk about the fact that it sacrifices a whole host of other values. Yeah. So I tends to do this with time and money. So it says you can save two things. <laughs> you save time and you can save money with the car. Now what do you lose? Uh, you lose beauty. You right. lose uh, um, like quiet. Mm -hmm. right? You lose safety, safety in a lot of ways. But you know, we just talk about our dominant values, which are, which are time and money. And then these become the ways we argue for the expansion of the technology. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's a, just a shell game, right? We right. Say, and then his yeah. point is that you don't actually save time and you don't actually save money. Oh, yeah. No, it's hard to imagine you save money. So the, the big way mm -hmm. and probably the most important way that you don't end up saving time is just there is a spreading out of life concomitant to its reachability by automobile. Right. Oh, I love I love that point. He's got a, a line. He says, motorways expand, driving wedges between neighbors, removing fields beyond the distance a farmer can walk. Like yeah. instead of having, I mean, you don't really have walkable spaces anymore. Like you yeah. can't get to things because things are just so spread out. And so suddenly you, I mean, we have created a system where I am utterly dependent on the car because I just, like I can't walk that far. Yeah. I mean, people often do this with technology where they judge it according to the world created in its image and then they find right. that it's successful. Right. So they say, yeah, a car helps me see my grandma. Mm -hmm. And a car gets me to, to groceries. Mm -hmm. And a phone lets me communicate with people that I haven't seen in so long. You know what I mean? Like it's always on the basis of this world, which, is, which makes sense. That's yeah. what we do. But when you take a step back and realize that modernity is something of an aberration, like it's a new and wicked way of viewing nature as something we need to mine for security, um, then it becomes more reasonable to look at what we did before and ask, well, what were we doing then? Did we always lack access to grandma? Like, right. <laughs> no, like we lived within walkable communities. Grandma's down the hall. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, so we live within walkable communities. And so what we're talking about is not a device that has allowed us to meet needs that we have. We're talking about a device that began by first imputing needs, right? So like the whole car thing was sold by this idea of needing to do like liberating cross-country travel and to, to move at, at certain speeds. But then the world actually becomes designed with the kind of possibilities people have. Um, it doesn't mm -hmm. need to be, but that is, in fact, what we do. So Yeah. Well, he's got another line about this, which I also love, uh, that, well, like, the car prompts him to consent to the design of his country's geography around vehicles rather than around people. Mm, yeah, totally. Totally. No, it's very obvious, and there's a lot in, like, the new urbanist movement that's... Um, 
cognizant of this and is is critiquing it. So I don't think we're saying anything that will be wildly new to people. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of a um, the idea of any critique of technologies is a critique of its absolutization, where it no longer simply serves an existing need, but in fact um, creates a necessity of itself, which by mm-hmm. definition means that humanity now has a crutch. Like they, humanity is now weaker. Right. It's a paradox, right? Because on the one hand, you think humanity is stronger because aren't we improved? Look at us. We're progressing. We once didn't have cars, now we do have cars. Humanity is better. Mm-hmm. The other hand, you can just say it differently, which is we once didn't need cars, now we do need cars. Humanity is <laughs> worse. So every technological development, unless it's governed by virtue, it's and just decision create dependence. creates a weaker humanity, yeah. weaker and weaker and weaker, until eventually you have the greatest progress in terms of technology and the greatest regress in terms of strength, in mm. terms of humanity, because you need precisely everything um, that you once didn't. <laughs> yeah, he he talks about that image too, like uh, how it uh, creates the habitual passenger. Um, so like man, like... Like when you're standing on your own two feet, you forget that you are the center of your own world and you have the power to go literally wherever you want. But because you have this dependence on cars and you feel an immediate helplessness on your own two feet, like I can't get to where I want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also really liked his point too about how um, like a world of cars ends up limiting your own freedom on your own two feet. Like now you, you can't cross into the mm. road. Yeah, being um, uh, because it's not normal to just walk places. It's it's weird if you do. Um, mm-hmm. Or uh, I think especially in America, we've just become, because we have cars, we've become extra, I don't know, uh, like protective of our own property. Like going back to the kid cutting mm-hmm. through a neighbor's yard, mm-hmm. like that shouldn't be a big deal. But you feel like you've just committed something really wrong, like trespassing on someone's property. But if you live in, a world where everyone walks places. Right. That's just what you do. Like I remember when I was in Croatia, I was in a small town. Um, actually, this was at Medjugorje. Mm. Um, because it, it wasn't... Sorry, it's just very typical that you would go to Medjugorje and then what you'd come away with was like <laughs> a critique of the car. <laughs> but I, I remember I remember walking through these little paths through the, the houses, like out, like away from the more industrialized um part of the town um i mean at the moment i just remember thinking that it was really like beautiful and i remember Mm -hmm. how freeing it felt just to like walk places and not feel like i was i mean at first i did feel kind of weird about it like i felt like like, am i like like trespassing like there's Mm -hmm. these houses Mm -hmm. around Mm -hmm. these people probably don't want me here um but that's just how people move like i think you have a a much greater sense of uh, an adventure that's around you when you can just walk places. Well, I think the car is the technology that makes liberalism true. And in the regard that you're talking about it, it makes it true in its presupposition of private property. Mm -hmm. So what distinguishes liberalism from any other social system on earth is that it really does assert that everything is owned, right? Yeah. Has some problems with rivers, but we'll sure figure that out soon enough. (laughs) Um, So everything's owned. And everything is owned, um, not in terms of use or anything like that, or custom, but in terms of a 
um, a deed. Um, now this is obviously not true because the world is given to everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And as a kid, you kind of know that because suddenly you're in a different spot and the adult might see the sign that says, if you trespass, I'll kill you. But the kid <laughs> can't read yet. And so he's just, you know, moving about. Yeah. But one of the ways to sure as heck approximate a world in which the, the regime of private property is actually valid mm -hmm. is to make a grid and then on all the lines of the grid, surround it by the possibility of death. <laughs> because that's what an American city is, right? It's When you grow up here, you grow up near um, death. So if you walk here, you may be smushed. If you walk <laughs> there, you may be shattered. Um, but here, right, is this sort of haven, as mm -hmm. it were. Um, and this is what we call home and yard and stuff like that. And, and so... The, you know, sometimes Europeans and other people make fun of us for this. Like we have a certain pathological love of like the picket fence and like oh, the yard yeah. and this being my spot. But you can see how how when you develop a society where the borderlines are all deadly to foot, to people on feet, mm -hmm. how it affirms the notion of private property as somehow like uncrossable and you know. Right. sacrosanct it's like it's like if there was a moat with alligators everywhere you probably feel the same <laughs> you probably feel the same way and i've always wondered about this like that the first thing i teach one of the first things i really teach my children once they walk is about the nearness of death at the hands of other people um and how just simply in order to to keep them safe i have mm -hmm. to right yeah and how this must create a kind of person. Like, I can't just be giving them a bit of information. Right? Yeah. When I say, yeah. like, okay, death is that way and that way, so please stay here. <laughs> um, and I was looking at these pictures of this town in Greece, I forget the name, that, that had uh, cars are banned. Like, you can't, or it's a Amazing. village, you can't have cars. Um, and it looks beautiful, and the streets are small, mm. and it's all at this human scale, and you can tell that there is there is just no need for these like empty expanses that are fit for mm. rubber wheels, but not not people. Uh, but I just couldn't help but thinking like a child would grow up differently here, mm -hmm. like and would be less amenable. It seems to me, just on a basic, in a basic way, would be less amenable to the kind of ideas that become prevalent in like liberalism, especially like libertarianism, like the idea of a, you know, nature being a sort of war against, of all against all. And then the individual having to enter into social compacts where he protects himself against the potential deadliness of his neighbor. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, all of that seems, I mean, I think all of that's stupid, but it sure doesn't seem so stupid to a child who's raised in and around death by the neighbor not as a sort of maliciousness of the neighbor, but as the quotidian functioning of the world. Yeah, this is just the way things are. Then, then to hear something like, yeah, we bind together in social compact in order to reduce the risk to our lives from others is like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a violent place out there. Um, of course, I think this is even more true about abortion, like the idea that we have an operating technology that threatens all life before it's allowed to live um, seems to me like it would very easily create a kind of people for whom liberalism is true. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not what we're talking about. Um, 
The other thing that Illich argues, um, which I think is just obviously true, is that we think we're saving time, but we spend a lot of time in traffic. Yes. Traffic <laughs> is a is a word for him that um, kind of has a formal use. It just means oh, yeah. the point at which everyone uses the same thing uh, always means that its efficaciousness is reduced. All right, so if you have the car in a world built for feet, then you are a god among men. Look at you go, faster than everyone else. Mm-hmm. But if you have a car in a world built for cars, then you're in traffic because yeah. everyone has <laughs> the bar has been raised and everyone has met the bar, and so and so now you just have uh, the pain of sitting in a car and not moving anywhere. And I think that so he uses some mathematics, which I'm sure were relevant for his time. Um, mm-hmm. where he says the model American male devotes more than 1,600 hours a year to his car. He sits in it while it goes and while it stands idling. He parks it and searches for it. He earns the money to put down on it and meet the monthly installments. He works to pay for gasoline, tolls, insurance, taxes, and tickets. He spends four of his 16 waking hours on the road or gathering his resources for it. And this figure does not take into account the time consumed by other activities dictated by transport, time spent in hospitals, traffic courts, and garages, time spent watching automobile commercials or attending consumer (laughs) education meetings to improve the quality of the next buy, I don't know that we have consumer education meetings anymore, maybe. Uh, the model, and this is this is the great part, the model American puts in 1,600 hours to get 7,500 miles, less than five miles per hour. So this is his real argument about yeah. speed. He's saying that uh, you cannot judge the speed of a car simply on the basis of any particular point that it's on the road moving. You have to judge it on the total basis of time spent for the sake of enabling even that possibility to have the car and get on the road. Mm-hmm. When you do that math, you're moving slow. Yeah. Five miles yeah. per hour, and he had already said the foot was three or four miles per hour, so what's the point of having the car? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, one of, one of yeah. the things that he says, and I'm not sure I quite understand or can explain what he's getting at, um, says beyond a critical speed, no one can save time without forcing another to lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, Say, so I think in... In that example, he's talking about, um, so like in, in a society where you just, you have things at a human scale and things are walkable, mm-hmm. then everyone is kind of in an equal area. As soon as you start introducing speedy technologies and then the more and more those become popular, then people's mobility starts to decrease as a whole yeah. well this is this is one thing i've noticed about illich in general that i really appreciate is that he doesn't just look at individual possibilities he's just he's very much a realist so he's not looking at the car and saying like well this means that this amazing possibility uh, opens up for this person like they can go on this like cross-country road trip what he's more concerned about is the everyday experience for your average person and person in particular for the poor um Mm -hmm. i think illich uh kind of demonstrates what the preferential option for the poor is like what allows for a good quality of life for your average person Mm -hmm. and not just immediately jumping to the ideal of what can this technology ideally Mm -hmm. offer me yeah and you can see this really clearly with cars that once you spread out everything because you are meeting the person who has a car, mm-hmm. like you're meeting his need, mm-hmm. then 
the person who doesn't have a car, the poor, lives in a society that is frankly hostile to him. Like right. for right. him to get to the grocery store, right? Which maybe it was already difficult uh, just for not having a lot of money to get groceries. But now he is slowed down even more. You know what I'm saying? So so that I think this is Ilsha's point, is that as the world develops in relation to a higher and higher speed, it becomes less and less accessible to people that can't afford the product that moves you at that high speed, right? So you can see this all the way up to like, glo- like a critique of globalism. Right. Like at a world in which we can hop on an airplane and get to a certain place, I mean, what was the whole Trump ph- phenomenon if not people who couldn't afford global travel and mm-hmm. a kind of in, uh, sort of totally mobile existence from nation to nation um, feeling feeling oppressed and left out of an economy that increasingly benefited the people that could mm-hmm. like like I'm sorry we can't uh, you know hop on a plane to a factory we own in you know China or wherever I guess we not China bad example yeah but there's um. a there's a there's an argument throughout Illich that we are always, um, the faster we go, the more energy we need to go that speed, the higher the cost. Mm-hmm. When this is the case, that particular speed is only really accessible uh, as a normal way of traveling yeah, to people that norm. can afford that kind of energy expenditure. Other people get to participate in it, but only as a sort of symbolic participation in um, what's normal for the wealthier. Right. So for airplanes, you know, the average family might be able to really save up, afford some plane tickets to go on like a a vacation in a year. Mm -hmm. But the guys in the first class are just on a a business trip. Yeah. Which is what a poor person does in his car. Right. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like it's... um, and so what you really get is a stricter hierarchizing of an apparently class of society on the basis of what kind of energy expenditures each class has access to. Right. So to kind of bring both of those uh, articles together, like unless you're the sort of person um, like who has who can afford a car um, that society is built for, like society is built for those with cars and then if you don't have a car then you experience society as being something hostile to you um and same i think with uh like the professions like if you're not a person that is good at navigating bureaucratic systems and functions Mm -hmm. like maybe it's a personality thing maybe it's just your situation in life and you experience society and you experience the world as something that is hostile to you and i think that's what the left is reacting to Mm -hmm. but it seems like the general approach of the left is not to scale down um but just to continue scaling up and uh like like let's let's the solution seems that the left is proposing is to lift up the poor into the bureaucratic systems well like if they're not good at processing like the the bureaucracy let's make them good at it yeah instead of yeah, going going the opposite direction. Yeah, and it, it comes down to the crucial point that it really matters what we build. It matters what we make, and it, and the and the way we design the world matters. Like we we can't just follow. There's obviously a critique of capitalism going on here, mm-hmm. and I think it's worth just pointing out, which is that 
prior to this idea that man lives by the profit motive in a sort of unrelenting um, way, there was really not a lot of what we would call technological development the way we mean it now. So you might have something invented that was really awesome, like a windmill in somewhere in medieval Europe where it hadn't been for a while. Mm -hmm. What doesn't happen is that the guy who makes the windmill says, it's a success. It's a hit. This invention is going to change the world and I'm going to get a windmill in every town and then ends up as like, you know, there wasn't even the mechanism for thinking about this, yeah, I think, yeah. right? But that's precisely the expectation we have in modernity, which is a, an invention. Why do, why do people work on it? Well, they work on it precisely to create a device that is um, going to be mass produced and going to be used as widely as possible. Mm -hmm. So it's for, You're going to be experienced as a need. As a need, yeah. yeah. Well, it's for the sake of its of its mass production. In some ways, it's saying it's for the sake of profits. I don't mean that in like a they just care about the money way. I think people love machines and love cool ideas, but mm -hmm. they can only think about it in relation to a market that wants to get as much of it as possible. Mm -hmm. And so every new device sort of lives or dies on whether it becomes ubiquitous throughout society. Um, and so when, when Illich is critiquing this, he's always critiquing the greed that inspires it in some way. Like, well, why not have a uh, car? Because this is the thing. Cars are awesome. Yeah. And, and I, I think people don't understand this. Like, <laughs> the problem with a car world is that it makes it impossible to realize how cool a car is. Mm-hmm. Because in a world built for cars, cars are not exciting. Yeah, it's just mundane. Yeah. It'd, it'd be like, um, I don't know, a world built for skateboards. It'd be hard to be cool and a skateboarder in such a world. Yeah, that's know? true. <laughs> <laughs> Already it's dubious, but it would definitely be true. <laughs> um, sorry, now I'm thinking about the way that skateboards are kind of like the the like flip side of the car world because they always use its... Yeah, it's not talking about that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> The car is incredible. I mean, it's incredible to be able to move 75 miles per hour, but it's not incredible in a world built for it. So mm -hmm. ideally what you have within a given society is the use of a particular technology. Well, the use for the of sake a luxury of, for luxury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you want to travel very fast to go very far mm -hmm. um, because that is not, that's not normal. Um, and we certainly don't need to design like at daily living around it. Right. Um, but let's have racetracks. That sounds great. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that people can get confused by this because they think that the only that what's always being proposed is some kind of like puritanical no to any given technology. But actually, what's always right. being proposed is to have enough trust in the goodness of humanity as it's created to not make something extraordinary that that we do create into something that we absolutely need to get by. Mm -hmm. Like do not impute to humanity needs that it doesn't have. Right. Uh, and that's the hard part. That's the technological paradigm that throughout this issue of the magazine is, is critiqued again and again. Yeah. Well, that was a question that I wanted to bring up because I, I do, I do get questions like that on the new polity email. Um, like people, yeah, like wanting to know, like, what's the what's the new polity take on technology? Because I think there's a certain reactionary 
uh, way of looking at Illich and saying, well, now that I see this, it means that I have to get rid of technology in my life, but I also know that's impossible. And then you just um, do. Yeah, so it just it creates in you like a sense of failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's I. One of my questions when I was reading both of them is like, okay, well, what is this? What does this mean for me? Because I can see the ideal that he is pointing towards, and I know that's not going to happen in my lifetime. Um, it's impossible for me to achieve. Um, and it also requires dependence on other people. Like mm-hmm. if I remove the car from my life, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that my world suddenly becomes walkable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you get a lot of rides. But I think, well, one of, one of the things you were pointing out earlier when we were talking was really helpful that uh, like one of, one of the keys, and like why, why this conversation is important is because you want to be able to see reality for the way that it really is um, and bring up, the next generation of people who can actually see things for the way that they really are and recognize that technology always brings with it a compromise. And is that a compromise that I really want to introduce into my life? Like, is this uh, luxury? Is this commodity? Or using it in the way that is normal, really worthwhile? And we're kind of in a bind because there aren't, there aren't like good options. Like if you, if you, tell yourself like that introducing this technology into my life is going to bring compromise that I don't want. Um, it means that you can't access certain things. You're not normal. I think, um, I actually heard this on a Matt Fred podcast a long time ago that, (laughs) uh, I was really struck by, um, which was, uh, I think the conversation was about cell phones for kids. And he was like, look, either way you're damned. Like your kid is just going to be a loser at school because he doesn't have a phone, he can't communicate in the way that everyone else is. Um, or if you want to keep a cell phone like out of their hands, uh, well, I'm setting it up wrong. Yeah, like you're either if you if you choose the the better thing for the kid, which is not giving them a cell phone, then they are a loser. But then if you're giving a kid a cell phone, like you're destroying your brain. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of in a lose lose situation. I think. Yeah, that's that's the place that you feel when you read critiques like Illich. Yeah, I think it's not impossible. There's always a, a task ahead of us. The point of Christian politics is to make the world into the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And this is the church on earth as it brings all things into one in Christ. And we're just about that mission. That's what we do. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's all done. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here be in heaven. So it's, first of all, just a matter of saying, okay, okay, what is real, what's true about my time, and what tasks do I need to perform in order to mm-hmm. bring the kingdom of God to earth? Um, and so two of the things that I think we should do, uh, one of them is to build pedestrian spaces um, to have places that exclude cars and to have forms of life really possible without cars. This is already Mm -hmm. true of of lots of cities. Um, But I think Catholics need to get behind it in a sincere way because what it does to have a space in which cars aren't allowed, but life is still attainable 
is it creates an education, or rather it creates an experience of a world that's genuinely possible. Like, here's a world in which you can get food from walking distance of your house, and at some point of this, you're not worried that if your kids move from four feet next to you, they might die. Right. And then what this allows for is an experience of a world in which the threat of death isn't omnipresent. Mm-hmm. And this allows us to imagine the possibilities of the, that expansion. So of removing that right. culture of death um, by degrees until eventually there, in fact, is no culture of death. Um, and I think that starts with just using political power um, to in within local contexts to create um, pedestrian zones within downtowns um, in order to assert the goodness of moving about on feet mm-hmm. and um, then hopefully using it as a pedagogical point at the same time. You had a conversation with Sean, whose last name I'm blanking on. Vincent? No. Um, this was... Case? Sean. It was, it was a conversation uh, with the guy who Doherty? runs Chattanooga Civics. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, it's really bad. I know your last name, and I was thinking about it earlier because I wanted to talk about it. I've forgotten it. Now you're making me confused. I thought that was Nathan. Oh, yeah, Nathan. That's really embarrassing. <laughs> Cut it. Well, well sorry, Nathan. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I think I think if, if people are, are inspired by that part of the conversation um, or, like, the idea of, like, okay, I can make – uh, places in my city more walkable that conversation i thought was really helpful mm-hmm. from someone who's already like really involved with local yeah. politics of how you get started with that because it does seem like a pretty impossible task so i just want to redirect people back to that yeah podcast i'll yeah, probably awesome. put the link in the description i thought yeah. it was really good yeah and the other thing is nathan um, bird that's it yeah ha ha i know you i know who you are <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the other the other thing is to um, I think get to know your car. So again, the, the the problem with cars is the car world, and one of the the ways that the car world operates is by making it all seem natural. Like it just seems like the world is for cars, and we can mm-hmm. and we literally change topography to such an extent that it's very hard to imagine yeah. cars not having always been there, yeah. roads not having always been there. But what you want to do, what you're shooting for, is the production of a child who, as he grows into wisdom, is able to look at things like highways and say, ah, I don't think we should have that there, and actually mean it, mm-hmm. right? And right, have the right. political efficacy to change it, which you can't have unless you can see yeah. that the highway shouldn't be there, or that the highway is not a natural thing but is in fact a choice a decision right a difficult decision to undo but mm-hmm. in fact still just a human yeah which decision. which requires i mean that, that's why this conversation is important because a kid isn't going to have that experience because a kid does experience the world as given and mm-hmm. so he's just going to assume that this is the way that things are unless someone else yeah brings yeah. him up into a different world or a different imagination and one of the things you learn when you're working on a car is its contingency as an artifact Mm-hmm. So what the way cars are presented increasingly to us is as things that we can't know from within because it takes professional knowledge and certification uh, in mm-hmm. order to deal with it. And what right. that does is it alienates us from the very means of our own survival 
in the sense of we need a car to live and precisely the thing that we need to live is the thing that we can't possibly understand yep this is this is definitionally alienation right right? um it's almost worse than alienation from the means of production because it's alienation from um i I said means of survival i'll just say that again like it seems so basic i mean um in the same way this is why i don't like furnaces but (laughs) (laughs) um but you see you see once you're under the hood of the car and you're looking for the starter um and you're cursing it that it is a product of man that not only not only is it a decision but it's often it's often a bunch of bad decisions like why did they put this here right, right? <laughs> i can't reach it <laughs> what tool do i need i need that um and as you're working on it, it slowly unveils itself. It unveils that those layers and layers of illusion mm-hmm. by which it presents itself as this sort of impenetrable but necessary appendage, right? Because right? think about an appendage. Like you can't go into your leg and figure out how it works because your leg's from God, right? You, I mean, you can't while you're living anyways. You yeah. have to become a corpse. And the car is designed, increasingly all technology, phones especially, are designed to present themselves as appendages of our being, crutches, things that because of their absolutization within culture, we need, we must have. Mm-hmm. And so our relationship to them becomes as to an extension of our body. Like, yeah, like we need it, I but we can't it, understand it. Can't, I just simply have to use it so that yeah. when it breaks, we're revealed to ourselves in our dependence and we're full mm-hmm. of fear. And we realize, you know, your, your Honda Accord breaks and you're sitting there and you're thinking, like, I have been taken out of the real and, yeah. <laughs> and now I, not only do I sort of exist as this sort of failure of humanity that can't achieve basic things like, you know, buying a potato anymore, but also um, the car becomes a sacrament of everything else that we have the exact same relationship mm-hmm. to. So it's like, well, if my car can break, then my furnace can break. I don't know how my furnace works. If my furnace can break, then my boiler can break. I don't know how my boiler works. I don't oh, know yeah, it from I within. <laughs> right? Like I am dependent on almost every instance for the most basic things, like I don't know, keeping a baby warm. Yeah. I am dependent. The warmth of a baby in my care is dependent on my ability to continue to make cash and give it to someone who knows how to operate the thing. Right? Yeah. To 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 give me something that is so basic that yeah. So right. I think. Well, I think. Uh, I think this comes up in Hanby's article. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, like we, like we are in a generation that has lost, like a whole a whole generation of knowledge. Like there's just like mm-hmm. basic things that we could do that we can no longer do. Like I don't. I don't know. I don't know how to like. I don't take care of a horse, or I don't sure. really know how to garden that well, or basic things to do to sustain my life. Yep that knowledge is lost to me and then his point was like you really don't think that this could happen with the most advanced technologies like as soon as we fail to pass that onto one generation we're all stuck because now we don't even have the basic knowledge right 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 we've we've lost we've lost i mean i think about this in regards to breastfeeding because it's not simply the case that like (laughs) we've lost certain forms of knowledge we also grow suspicious of forms of knowledge that are heavily reliant on things that we can't produce for money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sort of non-technological means. So it's like there was literally a time within American society where it was kind of disgusting not to be feeding your baby formula. Oh, yeah. And where we almost did, it was sort of like a sudden <gasps> gasp, a kind of collective gasp, that we almost lost 
this knowledge and skill of feeding children. Yep. Which is insane. <laughs> like, like, you know, <laughs> it doesn't seem like something that anyone could lose if you explained yourself to people even like a hundred years later and just described it as the time that we forgot how to breastfeed. They would yeah, think that you what? were just a <laughs> cursed generation. But um, so there's, okay. So the point is that when you live within this world in which your survival is, is increasingly dependent on the mere operation of systems that you can't understand, can't fix and don't know from within then one of the solutions is very paradoxical because it sounds like it sounds like the opposite is to actually dive in to the technology as an artifice like stop giving it this kind of natural quality that you don't understand stop treating right. it like a like weird become its master god yeah 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 show it who's boss you know? <laughs> <laughs> which of course you know it, it's funny because it's so hard to do that it's very obvious well, it's when time you consuming. first it's time consuming and people talk about this with me sometimes where I tell them that I'm, you know, I'm working on this or that thing that's broken and trying to fix it, and they say things like, "You should, you know, how to value your time." And I think what wow. they what they mean is something to the effect of like, "You're supposed to be writing or whatever, yeah. and so the time you spend doing this doesn't have an exchange value that that does the math, right? Because if you paid a mechanic and then used the time that you had not used right. on fixing mm -hmm. your car, of course, maybe that's all true. I don't know, but." But what I always want to say is like it's not about the money. It's not about it is the a, money. It's about freedom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is. It's about um it is about looking up from that time spent wrestling with something that I'm actually a slave to mm -hmm. and then becoming its master in some respect. Like, like come on, I know like how to fix four things on a car at this point. I'm just sort of learning as it breaks. Like I'm not gonna like job, Mark. thank you. Yes, yes, yes. I'm not gonna like go and take a class or something i'm just yeah. like well that's broken now i gotta figure that out but what doing even one thing to a piece of technology that otherwise alienates you does is it has you look up from the hood at the whole world mm -hmm. that suddenly you're existing in a, in a new relationship too right. because now you see the world well, of artifice feel. as artifice yeah. and so you're saying like well just as i can deal with this car as um, an artifact so too maybe i can deal with the DMV as an mm -hmm. artifact of man. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can, maybe I can like what, maybe the social mechanisms that seem to govern us without any chance of person and circumstance can be entered into and their inner workings can be understood and then manipulated in some way. The idea right, is like not, you break the illusion of being a constant dependent and you have to yeah. have that experience of it firsthand. Otherwise it doesn't really sink in. And that's the experience I have of people that are good at trades, like carpenters and stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're great at carpentry. And I'm not saying that they're like just by virtue of that good at every other thing. But what they have is a lack of fear in regard to the built world. So when they look at it, they have this sort of present understanding that says somebody built that. Yeah. And if somebody built that, then I can do it. Somebody made that. If somebody made that, it can be unmade. Like they don't have a sense of relationship to the world where where it's governed by fear. And so I think they're more mm -hmm. able to take the call of Christ to be not afraid seriously and say, well, let me, let me put it like this. I think they're enabled more easily to do politics. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, I mean, I think that's why Andrew, Dr. Andrew Willard-Jones, is the way that he is because... Well, well, Can't explain that, man, but... <laughs> well, uh, I just like know more of the stories from him 
growing up and i don't know if you if you meet academics like you just kind of assume that they have like a stuffy academic life and oh, that's no, their background no, yeah. and that's not true of andrew um, his dad was um was he an, was an architect or, i don't um, know what his dad was i i just remember uh hearing stories about his summer jobs of working on um fishing ships for uh, a whole yeah. summer uh or like riding horses before he could drive um yeah i i mean i mean he kind of has an attitude of like fearlessness towards systems mm. and i think it's because at such a young age he had the experience of ex of of experiencing systems as being artifice. Yeah. As being things that he could conquer as like a 16-year-old. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think what happens especially these days within like Catholic political thought is that we've had such a huge dose of libertarianism that people react in the other way where they say like that the point what I mean is people saying things like screw the system, you're an individual, you get to do what you want, etc you create a kind of political atmosphere in which the reaction to that is something like love the system, make the system the best system, etc. Mm -hmm. When obviously both are equally dumb, like it's just a sort of they're the same thing. What you need is um, the ability to restore what is missing to politics. And that is um, the dispensation, the possibility of dispensation of law. You need the possibility of any system being amenable to person and circumstance because it's still governed and put in place by man with intention and decision. Mm -hmm. It's like well, if we're going to have a bureaucratic management for the sake of the production of ID cards, fine. Like maybe, maybe I can imagine a situation when that, that is necessary to meet certain problems. Mm -hmm. But let's do it in such a way that it is always available to human judgment, to right. politics. Like, let, let's do that in such a way in which the person who administers the law is actually able to say, hey, in your circumstance, it doesn't apply. One form of idea is fine. Yeah. Hey, I can see you're not that good at uh, bureaucracies. That's okay. There's people like you world over. Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I to kind of go back to an earlier idea that I was thinking about, um, like, being being a good Christian is not being good at following the law but actually being in a position to judge the law and judge mm -hmm. it with prudence and wisdom um yeah to being able to see like here's here's the system um and here's the natural law and like i have the position of being able to judge whether or not that system actually coheres with what is true and what is good for the human person and it totally. gives you yeah it puts you in a real place of uh authority um and it requires yeah you can't you can't do that sort of thing mindlessly like it takes work to to be to get to the place where you can judge the law effectively um like you have to grow in virtue like you have to um like embody the law first not the like bureaucratic law um, but the moral law so that you yeah. can can judge it yeah, no, the. I mean, I wonder. I wonder if that's another like good mindset to be like training children in, like doing like exercises where like you like you can like actually judge the law. Like I remember growing up, like it just wasn't like you don't you don't really question the rules that like the school system has mm -hmm. or 
the the teacher has or maybe like my parents would question Mm -hmm. it but they wouldn't do that with me because they didn't want me to grow up questioning authority and i don't think that was the best move like i think it's perfectly like reasonable to just have an open conversation like judging the rules that other people are making yeah so that yeah like your your kid is brought up into a world where their imagination is larger of what the world could be because they don't just accept human artifice is being given yeah absolutely i mean paul says do you not know you will judge angels angels right like um there is much more required of us and um this is why in another essay in this marvelous magazine that everyone should buy (laughs) ratzinger talks about a he's so very subtle about this he talks about Mm -hmm. this relationship between technology as we have it now and an old heresy we call tutorism which is like legalism. Is it tutorism or tutiorism? Tu- is there a uh, that's a good I question. I don't know. I thought it was just a tutor. It's probably not that important. It's extremely important because then I can say something like, you put the I. No, it don't work. <laughs> it don't work. Um, let's see. I got it. What page? 16. Um, tutiorism. Tutiorism. Thank that's you. not a spelling error. Um, maintains that man in making a decision must guide himself according to the given laws and thus must always choose that option which corresponds most surely to the law in that ca- and in each case. That means that it is not a conformity to reality that leads to a decision, but the positivistic security of a direction derived from the law. Yeah, and, and so he's saying this is something condemned by the church Mm -hmm. Uh, in reference to morality and to salvation. Like, you cannot achieve salvation simply by following the law. So, I mean, old idea, actually, that that's being condemned. Um, But in some ways, this is what a absolutized technocratic state suggests to us, right? Where it replaces our contact with the real with uh, sort of impenetrable systems that the navigation of which leads to certain rewards that we mistake for eternal reward like mm-hmm. we mistake it for a successful and good life we well mistake lived it for like real mm-hmm. the real yeah mm-hmm. and i do think you're right that raising children to be judges of the law it's not simply um i mean obviously it is a process right like you need to be obedient mm-hmm. um in order to realize that the law is for the sake of a certain end and can be judged in terms of its attainment of that end. This is why we talk about judging the spirit of the law mm-hmm. or following the spirit of the law. Like where we are able to say, well, you know, something obvious, like, well, the law is that I have to drive this fast, but the reason for the law is to keep people safe. And mm-hmm. right now, if I don't drive really fast, this woman is going to die, and, you know, I'm imagining a woman like shot in the back of the car and oh. I'm rushing into the hospital <laughs> to be clear. So okay. I obey the spirit of the law. I don't, I mean, I, I, right. I break its letter. Mm-hmm. Those distinctions, if they're not being delivered to children, they simply aren't going to produce Christians except for a name, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. that is the new law, right? It's, it's on our hearts now. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just as like a, a, um, like deeper servility to a written law but right. a law that we as- actually assent to with our hearts because it's God's law and it's real mm-hmm. and, it, and we can freely assent to it as opposed to doing so in a servile, in a servile fashion. Well, should probably stop talking. Yeah, I think that 
So if you want to sort of start the exploration of, um, of a Catholic theory of technology, um, I would start with issue 3.4 of New Polity Magazine. <laughs>